Good morning, church. You can be seated. How's everybody doing this morning? 11 inches tomorrow, someone told me, of snow. I was just singing that song, I Know Breakthrough is Coming by Faith. I believe for a miracle. God, if it could be 60 degrees tomorrow, that would be great. Let's just in Jesus' name right now, receive it. My name is Mason. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Um, I just wanted to welcome you. So glad that you're all here um, in the building with us this morning. Um, it is such a pleasure and an honor to get to speak to you. Chris, do you need me to pull this away a little bit? I feel like it's a little touchy. A little back? Back. Okay, cool. I get it. Okay. That hopefully is better. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but I just wanted to say it is such a pleasure and an honor to get to, to speak to all of you this morning. Um, and also just felt impressed to share with all of you um, how much of an honor it is to be on staff here at Life Church. Um, I know I'm not very old, but I am a pastor's kid, so I've been around ministry and, and staffs and churches for a long time. Um, Life Church, you truly are blessed with an incredible staff. Um, it is really such an honor to get to serve under Roger um, and the elder team, um, and also to serve with the pastors and the st uh, support staff that we have. Um, I don't know if I've seen a better group of people. And I'm, I'm being truly honest. So I'm just so grateful and so thankful for our church and for um, all of us that, and I, I also pray that um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to serve you and pray um, that I can do it well. And so in a way that honors God. So we'll jump right in this morning. Um, this morning I wanna talk about blinders. Blinders. How many of you um, have worked with horses before? If you have like any experiences, we've got Roger Degree in the back. We see a few over here who've worked with horses before. I have absolutely zero experience, so I probably am not the person qualified to talk about this. But I knew about it just generally, so I'm going to talk about it. Uh, blinders are something that horses are put on horses, especially horses that are um, working horses. It's something that is attached to their bridle and put here. You've probably seen a horse with, like these before. But they're put here on the horses to keep them from getting distracted or spooked by things that could be in their peripheral vision. It keeps them very focused on what's in front of them. And it's, it's an ingenious invention. It helps them work better. Um, but when you, you uh, look up the dictionary definition of blinders, you get first this uh, definition of what, you know, blinders that they put on horses, but it's also something that is often related to, hum to humans, to people. Um, but, you know, you don't often or ever see someone actually wearing physical blinders, um, but it's just an illustration for someone who is prevented from seeing the whole picture. So when we apply blinders to us as people, it's something where a person is prevented from seeing the whole picture. A lot of that can be um, as a result of how you grew up or what your, your cultural blinders might be. But what happens when we have blinders on as people is that we think that all of reality is within our vision. We think all truth is, is understood through our vision and how we see the world. And sometimes when we have these blinders on, we only have a limited vision and can't see truth that lies outside of our own worldview, our own perception of things. So that's something we're gonna be talking about today. This week is our third week in our Mark Surprising Insights from Jesus series. Um, it's been so much fun this week, um, diving deeper into God's word, uh, and, and deep, diving deep too with, with Jesus in today's story. Uh, just an encouragement for you, 
just know you've never arrived. You have never arrived. I remember the first time I thought I arrived, I was 16 years old and I was in 10th grade. And I'm reading my Bible, I'm like, I know all this stuff. I know all the stories, I know what all of it means. But just know whether you're two or 92 in this place, you have never arrived. God's word, as we go to it, you, you can read a passage 100 times. On the 101st time, the Holy Spirit can breathe new life and new application and impact us and affect the way we live and, and impact the way that we think. So just know as we read God's word, continue to read. Be encouraged that you'll never, you'll never arrive. Continue to grow. God has just been speaking that to me this week. It's just a mini, a mini uh, message for you this morning. But I'm so excited to jump into today's passage. So... The story today is Jesus being rejected at Nazareth. We just read in Mark 6, 1 through 6. But this story is also found in the, um, in the first three Gospels. We have Matthew 13, Mark 6, and then Luke 4. The Matthew passage and the Mark passage are very similar. Um, there may, there's not a ton of detail, but it does tell us the story. Where the Luke 4 passage gives us a ton of extra detail, a lot more context, and I feel like it's really important in helping us understand this story and what's really going on. So today, um, as I preach, I'm going to be going in through Mark 6, 1 through 6, but I also will be referencing Luke 4, 13 through 30 uh, quite consistently. So if you have your Bibles, I would maybe have a finger in each place so that you can go back and forth. Uh, let's, let's jump in today. So I will begin by reading, um, again, repeating Mark 6, 1 through 2, where it says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue. And we'll jump right into the parallel passage in Luke 4, 14, where it says, Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Something important to remember, Jesus is near the beginning of his ministry, but this isn't the very beginning. Because we see reports are spreading around that Jesus is full of the Spirit's power, that he's known for his teaching and for performing miracles. Later in the Luke passage, we'll see that the people of Nazareth have heard about what he's done in Capernaum. So Jesus has already begun his ministry and is known for miracles and his teaching. But it was also common practice for us good to know, common practice for synagogue leaders to invite teachers, well-known teachers, to come to their synagogues and teach on Sabbath. So it's really likely that at Nazareth, Jesus was actually invited to come and teach that day. Jumping into Mark 6, 2, uh, back into Mark 6, 2, it says, many who heard him were amazed. Jesus, many who heard Jesus were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom? parallel in Luke 4, 18 through 22, we're given more context. In Mark, we just are told that he teaches and they're amazed. But in Luke, we actually see what Jesus is teaching. It tells us that he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, finds the part that he wants to read, and reads. So we'll jump into verse 18 and 19 of Luke 4, where Jesus is reading the Isaiah scroll. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will, be, the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. 
So my first takeaway today from our passage that we're going to be looking at is that the people of Nazareth were impressed by wisdom, but they missed the word. They were impressed by wisdom, but missing the word. So in Mark, we're told that Jesus taught and the people present, they were amazed by his teaching. Where did he get his wisdom? In Luke 4.22, it says, everyone spoke well of Jesus and was amazed by the gracious words he spoke. But the sense that we get from the passage isn't that they were amazed by his, like, the content of his teaching. They didn't hear him teach and be like, and, and consider and run it through their hearts and minds like, man, what he just taught, I'm thinking about what he taught. The sense that we're left with from these verses is that the people were impressed by his skill, impressed with him as a speaker, impressed with his knowledge and how much he knows, impressed with his ability to teach. They, it was obvious to them Jesus knew his stuff and was a good teacher. A good analogy for me is the, um, the art of glass blowing. Has anyone ever seen glass blowing. I think it is so impressive. I just am mesmerized, mesmerized watching these craftsmen put the, take the glass and put it in the heat and it gets red hot and they've got the tongs and, and the clasps and they, 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 their artistry is just phenomenal. But then I go into the glass store next door and I couldn't care less. I'm like, ah, who cares? Like, I'd never spend a hundred bucks on that, you know? But I love watching them do it. And the same is true here of the people of Nazareth and how they're seeing Jesus. They're impressed with his craftsmanship. They're impressed with his skill, but they're missing the content. They're impressed by something that's kind of surface level, but they're missing the depth. They're impressed by the production, but they're ignoring the product. So as we look to Luke 4, to look at what was the product? What was the word? What was Jesus really saying? We, like we were just saying, Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. But the passage that we, just, that we get in Luke 4, 18 and 19, is actually a bringing together of multiple verses um, in the book of Isaiah, ranging as early as Isaiah 42 to as late as Isaiah 61. And so the question is, did Jesus pick and choose? And like, did he quote it all together? And how does that all work? It's also good to remember that in, there really weren't verses and chapters until the 16th century. So when you read your Bible, you get the chapters and the verse numbers. That didn't happen until more of the modern age. In Jesus' time and a long ways up to the 16th century, it was scrolls. They had long scrolls where all the wording was all together. And so Jesus wouldn't have said, okay, now we're going to read from Isaiah 41. No, he would have found the place in the scroll and began reading. I think it's very likely that Jesus read the entire passage somewhere between Isaiah 41 and 61, and that Luke, based off of his emphases and writing, both for what really applied to this story and also to emphasize what Luke emphasized in his writing about Jesus coming for the oppressed, Jesus coming for the Gentile, would determine what he included in Jesus' quote here. But it's also, there's also the possibility and the likelihood we think about every Jewish male that was born in Israel came up in a synagogue school. They learned Torah. They learned the prophets. And I think sometimes we sell them short. We think they couldn't be any smarter than us, right? We know more than anybody's ever known in 2022. But we look at, in oral traditions, people had incredible skills and abilities for, for memorization, near-perfect recall or very accurate recall. 
So even if Jesus didn't read the entire passage, 42 to 61, his hearers and his listeners would know not just the words that he's speaking, but they would be thinking of the implications of the passages that Jesus is quoting from. And when we look at those passages, Isaiah 42 through 61, these passages are loaded full of prophecy about who the Messiah would be. These passages are loaded full of prophecy, talking about God's plan for restoring Israel, for God's servant that he, sent, that he will send one day. They would be aware of this. His listeners would know what Jesus is talking about. One passage that many of us probably know well is Isaiah 53, that talks about a man of sorrows in verse 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all talking about the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, God's plan for restoring Israel. So his listeners would be aware of the content of what Jesus is getting at, what he's trying to tell them. And he finishes his reading and he says, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this day. He lays out God's plan for restoration, for who the Messiah and God's servant would be. And he says, this person that you've been hoping and praying for, in a roundabout way, he says, here I am. It's me. The scripture you've just heard read is being fulfilled this very day in me. It's probably one of the most important, clearest things that Jesus ever said. And they totally miss it. Completely, utterly miss it. I don't know if this has happened to you, but there's times where my wife has been talking to me, but before she started talking, I was on my phone scrolling or texting or whatever. And then, you know, she finishes talking and I'm like, what? And she's like, you weren't listening that whole time? Like, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm a sinner. I'll be at church on the altar on Sunday. Forgive me, Lord. It's probably happened to you before. It's happened to me. But Jesus says something so important. He makes clear God's plan for redemption. And he says it pretty outright, and they just completely miss it. And the question that I'm left with, because I feel kind of dumbfounded, is how? How did they miss it? How could they miss it? I think one, like we have already said, they're focused on his skill and his wisdom. They're focused on the, the surface level, and they miss the depth. They miss what he's actually saying. Because they're thinking, it's like, he's from Nazareth. He's one of us. We watched him grow up. How is he this good? And they're just totally missing what he's actually saying. And then there's also this part of it that I believe is true for them as it is true for many of the Jews and Israelites that, that Jesus taught in his time on earth. In that there was this idea that, and people were so sure about who the Messiah was supposed to be. They were so sure that the Messiah was supposed to be this warrior king come to set them free from Rome that when God's plan was different, they're unable to see, hear, or recognize God himself telling them his plan. Speaking of blinders, being able to see past your own perspective, your own beliefs, your own ideas, their blinders were so fastened that when God came and showed up outside of their vision, they were totally unable to hear what he was saying, something absolutely groundbreaking, something absolutely world-shaking, and they totally missed it. 
So for us, how does this apply to us? They were impressed by wisdom, but missing his words. And the question that I have for you, and the question that I have for me, and I'd ask you to consider with me, is there something preventing you and I from hearing God's voice? As an individual, think of it. Is there anything preventing me from hearing God's voice? I think there's a lot of things, and that's something for all of us to chew on. But we know and believe that God speaks today. He speaks to you. He speaks to me. But is there something keeping you hearing, from hearing God's voice? I think one thing that really in our modern world we struggle with is, is just busyness and noise. We are so busy all the time. There's this pressure to go, go, go for our kids to be involved in every little thing. We want to make sure they're in the honor society and sports and music and art and this and that. For ourselves, we keep ourselves so busy with going to this thing and that thing and volunteering in this group and we're just go, go, going all the time. We're so busy. Good question for yourself. How many nights off a week do I have? How many nights a week do I just have space to be, to have nothing to do, and I have to figure it out? Another thing about the noise of our world, how many of us are absolutely inundated in social media, in Facebook, in the news, and just entertainment? Sometimes when, when, it's, when it's quiet for long enough, I can get stressed out, be like, oh, I gotta turn on a podcast, it's too quiet, you know? Because of our phones, like, and, 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 and the technology that we have today, we have this ability to never have to be quiet. And we have so many voices just screaming at us from every side. And the thing is, is with as loud and as noisy as our world can be, we look at Old Testament in, the, in one of the kings, Elijah runs off to Mount Sinai, and there's this story that there's this fire and this earthquake and this storm, all these things that are supposed to be so loud and obvious, but it says God isn't in them. And then at the end it says, and then God was in this whisper. So often God speaks in a whisper and we need to be quiet enough to hear. And so when it comes to the busyness of life, the, how loud and noisy our lives can be, maybe God is telling you this morning that you need to slow down, that you need to get quiet. Turn off the phone for a little bit. Turn off the TV for a little bit. Go find some solitude. Get quiet so that you can hear the voice of God. A lot of times you'll start doing that and you'll actually be able to hear your own voice. You'll realize that you've not even been recognizing how you've been feeling, what you've been thinking. And then God is gonna start speaking to you and start speaking through you. But if you've been struggling to hear God's voice, maybe busyness, and noise has been a problem. Another thing I think like the people of Nazareth is that we can have our blinders on. We can put God in a box of what he, what he can do with us, through us, and who he can be for us. We, he, I can't hear him or see him if it's not within my vision or my plan. I have these plans for my life. This is who I'm gonna be. This is what I'm going to do and I'm so set on my dreams and my plans that when God shows up outside of my vision, I can't hear him. Or maybe you have this idea of who God is to you, 
that you're, you're a Sunday morning, like God, you can have my Sunday morning, or God, you can, you can have my Wednesday night too, but like I have this like religious, spiritual part of me, and then the rest of my time and my week and my thoughts, my life is mine. We put God in this box of what he can do and who he can be. But Ephesians 3.20 reminds us that we worship a God who can do more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. So often God shows up outside of our own ideas of what our life can be or even who he's supposed to be to us. Man, God wants to be your everything. He wants to be the breath in your lungs, the blood in your veins. God wants so much, he wants to do so much more and more in you than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. And so may we open up our ears, open up our eyes, open up our heart to the more that God is calling us to, or to being able to be open enough to hear God when he calls us from outside of what we think is possible. Quick story, that happened to me. I wanted to say this. 2015, I'm driving up to Breckenridge, Minnesota to meet my girlfriend's parents for the first time. And I'm, I cross over South Dakota to North Dakota. It gets really flat. I'm on I-29. And I'm by myself in the car. Taylor's in her car in front of me. And I'm praying. And I'm thinking, God, I will never move here. There's no way. I, this is too flat. It's too desolate. Like, what? It's too cold. Why would I move here? 2020, July, here I am. Now I'm, moving, I'm in Minnesota. But so often God can call us outside of our, our vision of what our life is supposed to be or supposed to look like, amen? Let's open up our hearts to what he wants to do. There's nothing bigger or better than living out what God has for you. Moving on in the passage, Mark 6, 2, they ask Jesus, where did he get the power to perform such miracles? In Luke 4, 23, Jesus is responding to some of the, the doubt he can sense is coming. And he says, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. My second takeaway is this. People of Nazareth, they want miracles, but they miss the Messiah. They want miracles, but they miss the Messiah. And asking Jesus to come and speak He's, his reputation is growing for his teaching and his power to do miracles, and they want to see his abilities for themselves. But in both of these passages, we get this sense that there's a level of skepticism in the people of Nazareth. In uh, Mark 6, verse 2, where did he get his wisdom and power? They're, they're questioning it. They see it happening, but they're, they're like, where does this come from? They're not sure if this guy's legit. In Luke 4, 23, a more accurate translation would actually say, do what we have heard you did in Capernaum. What we have heard you did. We're not sure if it's true. We heard you did miracles in Capernaum. So we want to see for ourselves. Again, are you legitimate? Are you, is this for real? Show us. It's almost as if they brought Jesus to Nazareth out of curiosity so that they could see the spectacle for themselves. We see this kind of attitude repeated and shown in the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. Just two chapters later in Mark, in Mark 8, 11 through 13, there's a Pharisee who's seeking a sign from Jesus, and Jesus refuses, and he says, no sign will be given to this generation, which is something to chew on, but that's for later. 
the Nazarenes, the people of Nazareth have a similar posture. Give us a sign. Give us something to wonder at, to a spectacle to see, to, to ponder where your power comes from. And the question is, why does, why does Jesus refuse people with this motivation? Why does Jesus refuse people with this motivation of seeking a sign? And it's because it's, it's because they don't have faith. Jesus refuses their motivation because, because they don't have faith. And when we look at how Jesus defines faith throughout the Gospels, it's not just about believing that he's capable. It's not just about believing that Jesus can heal. Jesus, when he's talking about faith, is also talking about believing in his identity as Savior and as Lord, as Messiah and as God with us. There are multiple accounts in the Gospels of Jesus saying to people, your faith has saved you. In Luke 17, Jesus heals the one leper who comes back. And he doesn't just say your faith has healed you. He says your faith has saved you. And he's not just saying saved in a kind of like general nonchalant way. It's very intentional. You have been saved. You have been justified, made right with God today because of your faith. Not only healed, but made right with God. And in these stories where Jesus says this statement, your faith has saved you, these people in these stories, they demonstrate understanding that in Jesus, they are encountering the Savior and Lord of all. They maybe don't fully get it, but there's this sense that when they encounter Jesus, that they're encountering someone entirely different than anyone they've ever encountered or seen before. You see language like son of David, which is a messianic term. In Luke 17, the leper that comes back has this realization that he needs to come back and worship God, and he gets at Jesus' feet. There's this understanding that you are my savior, you are my God. And when that happens, not only are they healed, but they are, Jesus says, you have been made right with God. So just like we see in the scriptures spoken to us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That same kind of faith that saves us today is the same kind of faith Jesus is looking for in the Gospels. Not people just, that just believe he's powerful enough, but people whose eyes and hearts are open to the reality of who he really is, Savior and Lord. The Nazarenes do not realize who they're meeting. They're looking for miracles, but they miss the Messiah. So looking at our lives, maybe you've come to a place where you've said, God, give me a sign. I just want a sign from you. And when I look at, really, people I've met, someone here in this very church that I'm close to, I know people who have asked God, just give me a sign and I'll follow you. And he shows up and he does it. And there's incredible testimonies of people coming to faith or growing in their faith as a result of one of these moments. And so I can't say that the takeaway in this story is we can't ask God for a sign because his grace is too good. He is too big. His ways are, too high, are way higher than our ways. Sometimes God shows up that way and it's pretty cool. But I think the problem lies in for us that we want what God can do for us more than we want him. At times in our life, we can want what God can do for us more than we want him. We, can, we try to control God instead of drawing near to him. 
We try to figure out what we have to do to get God to move. We think that there may be this formula that can summon God's miracle power, that if we just have enough faith, that if we just pray enough, believe enough, fast enough, then God will show up. But we all know, and many of us, I'm sure, have stories of times where we've prayed earnestly, where we've believed with all our heart, where we've even fasted, God, would you heal? God, would you move? God, would you work? And maybe he hasn't. I think something to learn from these moments is that God's number one objective with us is relationship. God's number one objective with us is closeness and nearness to him. And his number one objective for us is for us to realize the same thing, that nothing is more important than relationship, closeness, and nearness with him. God's radical transformational, he wants to get his radical transformational love into us, giving us life and just pouring out of us. When we come to the place of simply wanting God more than anything, we're finally where we're meant to be. Let's say that again. When we come to this place of simply wanting God more than anything, we finally are where we're meant to be. And we don't get right with God and we don't put him first just so that now he'll do what I want him to do. If you, feel, if you thought that, you may have a control problem that you need to pray about. But we are, we are meant to relate to God, not in a, a relationship where I'm trying to control him. We're meant to relate to God in a posture of surrender. That whatever comes, whether suffering or loss, whether victory or gain, whatever comes my way in my life, that our hearts would sing that old song, it is well with my soul. No matter what comes, it is well with my soul because there is joy and peace and life to be found. All I need is Jesus. Take it all away so that all that is left is you. And so often, the people in, that I've met in my life who are most surrendered and dependent on God often see him move the most and see him move in the most powerful ways. Moving on to our next part of the scripture, Mark, 3, or Mark 6, 3 through 4, says, Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. Quickly, I want to look at verse 3 just to clarify. It says, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. This is one of the reasons why I felt it was really important to draw attention to the Luke 4 passage, because I don't think that they were offended by Jesus simply because he was a great teacher and could do miracles, and that he was from Nazareth, and they just couldn't conceive of how he could do this, and then they were deeply offended. I believe the 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 source of this offense is actually found in Luke 4, 25 through 27, where Jesus tells the people of Nazareth this story of the Old Testament prophets Elijah and Elisha. And in these stories, he's talking about how the people of Israel, they needed miracles. They needed God's power to move. But instead of God sending the prophets to the people of Israel, God sends the prophets to Gentiles, to foreigners, to pagans. 
And the point that Jesus is trying to make is that if Israel won't believe, then God will go to the nations where people will believe. And he's foreshadowing what God is doing and is going to do in the church that is soon to come. That God will go to places where people will believe in him, where they will respond to him, which is very uh, appropriate for the story that we're just reading because they encounter God, they encounter his son, announcing to them exactly God's plan for redemption, and they completely miss it. So he's foreshadowing what he's about to do. But speaking, going back to their blinders, they're so sure of how God works and, and who God is and how he relates to his people that when they hear Jesus say this, they are incensed, they are enraged. And in Luke 4, we read that they take him to the hill that Nazareth is built on. And if you've ever been to, to Israel and to Nazareth, it's built on a pretty large hill. It's called Mount Precipice. And there is a, a drop for sure. And what they want to do is throw Jesus off the cliff, which is the traditional way to begin a stoning, is you throw them off of a high place, and then you begin to stone him. So in the, one of Jesus' first times, like, publicly preaching, they want to kill him. So if, if that ever happens to you, just know you're walking in Jesus' footsteps. It's okay. But either way, they're, they're, they see Jesus' statement as, as heretical, and they seek to kill him. That was, I, I just felt like I needed to say that. Going back to Mark 6, 3 and 4, they're, they're wondering, isn't this the carpenter, Mary's son, brother of Joseph, Judas, Simon? Didn't we just watch this guy grow up? Isn't he the carpenter, the tecton that, in the Greek that we've, he's doing the same jobs that we've been doing? He's just like us. We've grown up with him. And Nazareth in the first century was a town of about 400 people. And it's really likely that a lot of those people were related, that, they, that their, their children married each other, and there's probably a lot of these people Jesus is teaching are his relatives and his cousins and his own family. And they've all watched him grow up, and when they see Jesus coming, speaking with such authority and such knowledge, when they see and, and hear of his ability to do miracles, they have witnessed Jesus in the ordinary, and they struggled to see him as extraordinary. They, they, this was one of their major blinders. They couldn't see Jesus as he was because they couldn't see past what they had seen themselves and what they had witnessed in their own, with their own eyes. I think we too, people of Nazareth had a problem of proximity. They had had proximity to Jesus. They had grown up with him. They had seen him. And so it was really hard for them to see Jesus as he was. And I think we can have a problem with proximity too. I think something absolutely true about life, if you've grown up knowing people long enough, we have this, this hard time believing that people can change. I think it's, 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 it's something they've written so many books and, and made so many movies and TV shows that are built on this theme, can people change? It's probably a belief that might split this room. I don't know what the percentage would be, but this belief, do people change or do people not change? And if you've grown up with people who have hurt you, if you've grown up with people that you've hurt them, there's probably some of that going on. Can people change? Can I be around that person again? One of the fundamental realities that we grapple with in our faith is that relationship with God is meant to change us. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if you are in Christ, the old life is gone and a new life has come. Relationship with God is meant to change us. This thing called Christianity, this following Jesus, isn't some empty philosophy, some pipe dream about a utopia of a good God and, and life to the full. It's real and effective and is meant to change us from the inside out. That our old life would die away and that we would die to sin and come alive to Jesus and walk in the Spirit. New people, overcoming the old, overcoming our sin, being healed of our hurt and our pain and becoming free and full and new in Jesus. One of the greatest testimonies of the Christian life is a changed life. But some of you have grown up and you've had so many voices in your life telling you that you'll never change, that you'll never grow, that you'll never stop being lazy, that you'll never stop lying, that you'll never achieve, that you'll never overcome that addiction, that you'll never overcome that struggle. And those voices can be oppressive and we begin to believe those lies. I'll never change, I can't change, I just don't have the, I don't have the ability and the power the truth is you don't, but with Jesus and the Spirit of God inside of you, he changes and he transforms us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but as we journey with him, God moves in us, grows in us, transforms us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. So as we struggle with this problem of proximities, we struggle with believing whether we can change we need to believe that we can be changed, grown, and transformed in relationship with Jesus. Some of you just need to hear that today. You can grow. You can change. The Holy Spirit can do it. It may be slow. It may be quick. But God wants you to grow. God wants you to change. God wants you to be a better mom, a better dad, a better brother, a better sister, a better friend. And with Jesus, there's that ability to grow. It's true. For some of you, you need to hear and believe that others can be changed, grown, and transformed. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For those that struggle to believe that others change, or maybe even don't want others to change so that you can hold it against them, I'd encourage you, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who have hurt you. Pray that God's transforming power would get in those people's lives and would change them from the inside out that the old would be gone and that a new life will begin full of Jesus' heart and Jesus' life. As I close, the big idea of this sermon, if you really summed it up, goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Jesus responds to faith. Jesus responds to faith. This truth is the antithesis of the people of Nazareth's response to Jesus. In verse 5 of Mark 6, we see one of the most audacious statements in the Bible. It says that Jesus couldn't heal the people of Nazareth. Now, I believe that Jesus had the power to heal, but God in his wisdom some, at times limits himself to our response to him. And this is what we see in Nazareth. They didn't get miracles because they didn't get Jesus. Jesus doesn't respond to request. He responds to faith. Faith not just that he can, but faith in his, and belief in his identity as Savior and as Lord. 
And his number one priority is drawing us into right relationship with himself. It's from this place, fully surrendered to him, that we can experience his life, his will, and his freedom and his power. So as we close today, if you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe today is your sign. Maybe God has been working on your heart and revealing to you today or over the last weeks, months, or years that that Jesus is real, that he is Savior, that he is Lord. And some of this This whole thing may just feel a little out of your grasp or hard to understand, but there's this sense in you that you're supposed to begin this journey of walking with Jesus and getting to know him. And I just invite you today to make a decision to begin that journey. After worship, there's going to be an opportunity to come and receive prayer. If that's you, I encourage you to come. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, maybe God wants you to get your priorities straight today. We all struggle at one time or another putting God first and realizing that relationship with him is literally the lifeblood of us. That no matter what happens, no matter what comes, I'll be okay if I have Jesus. Some of us today need to remember that we're not seeking God for what he can do, but we're seeking him because he needs to be the number one in my attention, in my affection, in my time my heart, my life. Let's just get right with Jesus today. So what I'm gonna do, uh, if you will, let's bow our heads and pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray of the words spoken today. Lord, I pray um, that you would just seep into us, that you would get into our hearts. God, if nothing that was said um, hit with, any, with someone today. Holy Spirit, I pray during this time of worship, God, that you would just encourage. God, that you would remind them that you are a lifter of burdens. God, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Maybe they came in, God, with heavy burdens, heavy stresses, heavy anxieties. Lord, and I pray that you would just lift that oppression from them. God, that you would chisel off hurt and pain, that you would do physical healing, emotional healing in this place today. We love you, we praise you, and it's in your name we pray, amen.